Welcome to the Waste Not Want Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet, the way nature intended by revitalising our natural resources, minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all my show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philippaross.com and don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello Wastebusters, welcome to episode 17. Have I got a treat for you today? Yesterday was World Health Day, so my focus this week is on ways we can boost our vitality and nourish our souls, hearts, minds and bodies. I'd like to kick off with an inspirational quote to fill us with hope from Dr Jane Goodall, who celebrated her 88th birthday on the 3rd of April. She says, The small choices we make each day can lead to the kind of world we all want for the future. Now mandates have been lifted, events to lift the spirit and create change are being organised. A past podcast guest of mine, Franco Heke, is delighted to announce a four-day spirit festival that's taking place in Auckland between the 5th and 8th of May. Ticket details are in the show notes. Marion Williamson, author, spiritual leader and political activist, famous for her quote that our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, but our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. She's coming to New Zealand on the 31st of July, which just so happens to be my birthday, so I decided to splash out and book a ticket to have lunch with her before attending the show where she'll be talking about ways to harness the power of love into a collective force for good to transform ourselves and the planet. What I didn't realise about her is that she founded Project Angel Food in 1989, an organisation that brings medically tailored food to people with life-threatening diseases all across Los Angeles. A fitting link to the work of today's guest, who is none other than ex-Green Party MP Gareth Hughes, who's now steering Aotearoa Food Rescue Alliance. The depth and breadth of the work the organisation does is phenomenal, flipping a national environmental food waste problem into a social solution that nourishes millions countrywide. While we're on the subject of fodder, a decree drafted by Spain's Ministry for Ecological Transition to ban the sale of fruit and vegetables in plastic wrapping comes into effect next year. The Swedes have developed an app called Bauer that currently operates in the Scandinavian countries in Los Angeles to incentivize people to scan their waste and take it to recycling stations where they'll get rewarded with money for themselves or they can pass it on to a charity. Some countries are light years ahead of New Zealand when it comes to finding solutions for waste. The good news though is that momentum is gathering and there are proposals being considered for curbside food scraps with a specific scheme for businesses as well as a container return scheme. You can check out the proposal and submit your comments up until the 8th of May. The links are in the show notes. Products like plastic stirrers, cotton buds and polystyrene food packaging will be banned after the 1st of October this year. 
by mid next year, single use plastic like straws, cutlery and produce labels will also be phased out by mid 2025. All other PVC and polystyrene food and beverage packaging will be transitioned out. I guess we should be grateful it's happening, but it's seriously frustrating as to why it takes so freaking long to implement. Manufacturers need to wake the chuff up and just stop producing it. Sorry, I'm a tad fired up after watching a movie called Trash. It's tragic and heartbreaking to see the mountains of rubbish that some people are literally living on top of and ingesting in their bodies, either from bathing in it or drinking the toxic infested water. While we're talking yucky stuff, a follow-on from last week's news that microplastics have now been found in our bloodstream. Research has come to light that the toxic chemicals in plastic may be linked to obesity. The link being because they disrupt the endocrine system which controls our appetite, metabolism and weight. And wait for it, I've just this minute read an article that said microplastic pollution has been found lodged deep in the lungs of living people after samples from tissue in 11 out of 13 patients undergoing surgery. We literally ingest microplastics from the air we breathe and in the water and food we consume. As a result of all this information I've gathered this week, I've vowed to find a source where I can buy my milk in a glass container and I'll be attempting to make my own yoghurt from now on. I did it when I lived on a farm at the age of 11, so I know I can do it. It's just a matter of sourcing the goods and making the effort as opposed to opting for convenience. I saw a quote today from Sandra de Frit, who leads the Plastics Economy Initiative at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. He said, if it's not designed to be recyclable, then you can have as many incentive schemes as you want. It's still not going to happen. We definitely cannot recycle our way out of this. So true. Yes, we can clean up the mess we've made, but we have to totally shift our way of thinking and start doing things differently. Our throwaway mentality is literally killing people and the planet. One company that's repurposing tons of plastic and helping to reduce the amount of waste created by the construction industry is Safeboard, who turn milk bottles and Tetra Packs into wall and ceiling materials. And they've teamed up with a national initiative called Cafe Collect, who redirects goods that would otherwise go to landfill taking them to Safeworld to make further use of them. It's networks like this that have made a phenomenal contribution to the work that Aotearoa Food Rescue Alliance do, or AFRA as I'll be calling them from now on, because the full name is a mega mouthful to keep saying. I had a fascinating conversation with Gareth Hughes about life before, during and after politics, all of which has undoubtedly contributed to the remarkable impact the organisation has made during its first year by preserving the planet and boosting people's health. Gareth's fun, curious, enthusiastic and at times rebellious approach to life comes through loud and clear, as does a genuine love and connection to what he's doing, because it allows him to tend to what's important to him as a person, the people in his life and his reverence for nature. Welcome to the show, Gareth. It's an absolute delight to have you with me. Oh, kia ora. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. Excellent. So we're here to talk about AFRA and your involvement with food, but it would be very remiss of me not to talk about the 11 years you dedicated as an MP for the Green Party here in New Zealand. 
Did you have any aspirations as a child and what actually led you into politics? It was a bit of an accident, if I'm honest. Uh, I think if I was in high school, I thought maybe one day it's something I'd like to do. I'd always been quite interested. And, you know, growing up in the 80s and the early 90s, where there was so much change happening in New Zealand, I was interested in politics and was actively following it. But it's something I thought you had to be, you know, retired uh, or after a, a huge successful career, you'd do it. I never thought that I'd end up being the youngest politician in Absolutely. the house when I was there. Uh, I guess I'd always been interested in my world, mostly as a, um, a protest. So I was a little bit naughty at high school, but I was still academically inclined and really involved with rowing and debating and a group, a bunch of other different sports. But I was never a prefect. And I was a bit annoyed about that. So I actually ran for the Board of Trustees and was elected to the Board of Trustees. And from there was elected to the local Gisborne District Youth Council. And then at my university, um, had a bit of a run-in with the hostel. And so I set up an angry residence association to sort of <laughs> criticise some of their work. So I guess I've always been a little bit involved in politics, but I never thought I'd be a politician and never went in with that aspiration. I was very much fortunate and was in the right place at the right time. So it's awesome to hear somebody who actually has the guts to take a stand for what you believe in. I believe one of the things you did in your youth was to chain yourself to the gates um, outside the distribution centre of McDonald's in protest of genetically modified chicken. Yeah, I think this was maybe 2003, 2004. Um, GE was a huge issue back then. And throughout my career, I've sort of reflected that it's normal being a human, I guess. But throughout my career, there's been lots of uh, touch points on food. And really, you know, when you look at environmental issues, political issues, food are front and foremost, uh, just because it's so important to us humans. But back then, you know, genetic engineering was a hugely controversial issue. We saw gigantic marches, massive petitions, Royal Commission of Inquiry. And McDonald's were feeding their chickens that they purchased, genetically engineered corn. So I was working for Greenpeace at the time, and we ran a campaign where we um, actually paid an actor to dress up as Ronald McDonald, and he publicly resigned uh, as the figurehead of McDonald at their flagship store. Then I got to go around the country with a bunch of chickens, uh, where we would go into a McDonald's playing the chicken dance song in a big boombox, <laughs> handing out happy meals to all the customers and talking to them about genetic engineering. But after about a month, we realized we really had to do something else to, to keep the attention on this really important issue. So, yeah, I dressed up as Ronald McDonald and chained myself to their distribution facility in Auckland. Uh, ironically, we had organized it early in the morning with the sunrise. We had people in chicken suits next to me. We had this idea of this beautiful sunrise image as I'm locked onto the factory. But in fact, it was the photograph of me, me being led away by police officers <laughs> and then putting in the police car that, in a sort of pre-viral image age, did go viral around the world. And I got sent newspaper clippings from Israel, Brazil, and a whole bunch of different countries where the image had been printed in their newspapers. And within two days, McDonald's had gone G-free in New Zealand. So wow. for me, it was a... It was a lot of fun. It was uh, pretty weird to be in the police cells still with the, you know, the clown makeup on and get my, my mug shots. But for me, politically, the lesson was that you can make change and change is possible. Even with gigantic corporations, it's possible to change their direction. So that's given me a lot of optimism as I've built a career working for change over the last 20 plus years that change is possible. Did you actually work for, for Greenpeace or did you just have involvement with Greenpeace? I was working for Greenpeace at that point. That was my dream job. I started off fundraising for them when I was studying at university on the streets and then got to work in what was called the actions department where they organized their you know, big actions and nonviolent direct action and stunts. 
and then I got to work on there in the campaign team. So yeah, huge respect for that organization. And again, that's where I learned that change was possible. I don't know if you're aware that Greenpeace were involved in the awareness of marine protection for Antarctica and particularly the Ross Sea. My great, great, great grandfather discovered the region. I was a very active part in the campaign leading up to it. And then in 2017, when it became official, I did a talk down in Greenpeace in Auckland to thank them for their part in it and actually to officially make it um, a thing, really, which is great. And I think the big thing here is bringing things to people's notice is a really, really important thing. And there's no bad media, as you found out with your pictures of the um, of you in the cell sort of thing. It creates uh, a response. So what is it that uh, led you into politics then? Oh, well, you said earlier it was about it was an accident. So <laughs> how did that accident happen? Well, I guess. So I was 18 in 1999, turned 18 just before the turn of the millennium. And that was the first time the Green Party stood. Right. Since 1990 in New Zealand. And it was the first time the Greens were elected to Parliament in their own name. And for me as an 18-year-old who had you know, met the Prime Minister, Jenny Shipley, had you know, followed politics and seen how sort of distant it was and dry and boring and yep. um, had no bearing on me as an 18-year-old or yep. from my small little provincial town. Seeing the Greens elected in 99 was a real watershed. And I joined the party at my first year of university, but didn't really do anything else, didn't really get involved. But it was after a friend of mine at Greenpeace said that Jeanette Fitzsimons, who was the leader of the Green Party, was looking for someone to help her on climate change issues, that I got a job interview, was lucky enough to get that job with Jeanette Fitzsimons. And really it was working up close with someone who I greatly respected and seeing how her and the rest of the Greens approached politics and and campaigning that I put put my hand up to stand in the next election, just missed out. But within a year, I was there. So um, wow. it really was simply about working with these people and seeing that you didn't have to be retired. You didn't have to, you know, um, be an old white guy, which was still the majority of members back then. There was a future. And um, I was really grateful that the party really supported me as a young guy. I'd uh, had, a, had a new baby at that point, you know, to, to actually be elected. And wow, what a privilege and what an experience that was. One of the really important things is, as you say, there is this kind of image of any politicians are of a certain age and stodgy and old and it's all very boring. But the very fact that you are um, youthful makes it more relevant to people because a lot of uh, youngsters don't get involved in politics because it is so stodgy and a lot of people think how does this affect me kind of thing and it's very much a them and us kind of situation and it really brought it into people's homes the fact that someone so young was actively doing stuff for climate change so what sort of things were you involved in there when I was in parliament yes Gosh, so, you know, being in a smaller party, I think I had about a dozen or more portfolios at some point. So really the analogy I use, it was like juggling balls. You're constantly trying to catch all these different balls. You know, unlike in a big party where you're lucky if you've got a portfolio or maybe two. So, gosh, across my career, I've worked on everything from energy, which is a real passion of mine, uh, climate change, housing, IT, commerce, affairs, you know, rural affairs, primary productions, fishing, ocean issues. I worked on that Ross Sea Marine Protected Area you know, oh. campaign uh, and it was really great to see that through. There'll be a bunch more food. Um, the legislation I passed was country of origin food labelling, where now New Zealanders have the right to actually see where their food 
has been grown or raised or, or came from, uh, youth issues, tertiary education issues. So, yeah, quite a few across my little career. Wow. So you were there for 11 years. Is there anything that sticks in your mind from your career within the Green Party? Oh, well, I guess I should put my former politician hat on and talk about my successes and victories. But yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what I was really proud of was um, negotiating the end of offshore oil and gas exploration in New Zealand. Uh, as I said, you know, energy is a real passion of mine. Climate change is this big, like Damocles sword, this big existential threat hanging over us. So that was a, a real highlight for me, as long as getting the country of origin food labelling bill passed. Mm-hmm. I remember at one point passing legislation under urgency and we managed to pass a law in a day. Unfortunately, only related to the flag referendum. So it wasn't the most consequential of things. But yeah, that was an amazing experience. Achieving things like a banning of shark finning, which most Kiwis would be shocked to learn that that was something we were still doing uh, slightly less than 10 years ago. But on a personal note, Sir Geoffrey Palmer, a former Prime Minister of New Zealand, said being an MP is the best education you can have into your country. And it's true. And for me, that was the highlight of my time there, apart from you know, working with others to achieve change, was actually going into people's factories or homes or, or science labs or farms and getting to learn about their lives and what they were working on. And there's so many amazing stories of great stuff happening in New Zealand. And it was a real education into my country. As you say, there's so much good stuff happening, but we tend to be um, shown all the bad stuff. But uh, so was there anything you wish you'd managed to achieve that you didn't? Oh, I would have loved to have been a minister. And you can actually do uh, achieve a, a lot more change in those roles. It wasn't uh, possible for me in, in my small party uh, at, at that time, but that would have been great. Uh, but when I think about my sort of mentor and person I look up to, Jeanette Fitzsimons, she wasn't able to be a, a minister either. But still, you know, I was able to contribute and was proud of what I managed to achieve. But after you know more than 10 years in Parliament, raising young kids there, constantly travelling, constantly away, it yeah. was pretty easy, actually, in the end to make the decision to, to retire in 2020, um, to really spend time with my kids who are now teenagers. And I'd spent so many years away. Even though I was lucky that I lived in Wellington and walked to Parliament and walked home every night, I still spent so little time. I missed out on lots of time with my children. So it takes a real personal toll as well. And, you know, you've got Simon Bridges, the former leader of the National Party, who's stepping back now for, for family issues too. And I can understand it. Yeah, it's a great privilege, but it does come at some cost. Absolutely. And the children's lives, you just can't get it back again. They grow up so fast. I'm a nana now and I've got five grandchildren and it's like, I can't even believe my own children have got children of their own. So it it goes so quick and it is such a precious thing. But maybe when you're an old codger, you'll get back and you'll realise that ministerial dream of yours. But maybe- oh, who knows? <laughs> but, um, so we moved um, from Wellington to Dunedin, where we got to move to an island called Quarantine Island, where my wife became the keeper. Uh, so for the last almost two years, we've lived here. We're now just back on the mainland. But that was amazing, having an island to ourselves wow. where we got to drop the kids off at school in the boat in the morning and all those sort of real great family experiences. So mm. uh, we've really caught up with some missed time. Excellent. Excellent. So how did you get involved with Afra? Well, we were living on Quarantine Island. I was working on a biography of Jeanette Fitzsimons, which is coming out uh, with Ellen and Unwin soon. It's called A Gentle Radical. If we're honest, we started running out of money <laughs> with, um, working part time as, as my wife of the island keeper. So I was looking for, for work. I've been really lucky to make a career ever since I was 18, working for groups like Greenpeace or others 
that are really consistent with my values. So when I saw the job going for food rescue, it was just a perfect fit. It was a part-time job. It was remote, so I could still do it from the island. I started off job sharing the the part-time job with my wife. Uh, It was a communications job. But over time, the amazing uh, Tessa Vincent, who was the engagement lead at AFRA, who helped set up the organization, uh, she was off to Oxford University. So I took over her part-time job. My wife stayed with the part-time comms job. In politics, I'd met up with a number of food rescue organizations. I'd even volunteered a little bit to, to get a sense of what their operations were like. And it was consistent with my values. What food rescue does is turn an environmental problem, which is food waste and emissions, waste of energy and resources, into a social solution, dealing with the very real and pressing issue of food insecurity in New Zealand. So yeah, it was right up my alley, the idea that we could help people and have a really win-win-win solution. So how long has Afra been going? Well, we've only just celebrated our first birthday. Wow. So in a sense, we're a, a creature of COVID. Now, there have been lots of food rescue groups in New Zealand, members of Afra, such as the Auckland City Mission. You know, for decades, they've been actively trying to find good, nutritious food, uh, maybe that could be going to waste and making sure it got to people in Auckland who needed it. Across the country, there are members like Kaibosh in Wellington, who's been around for, I think, a decade, Kiwi Harvest in multiple cities, uh, Fair Food, uh, Kaivolution in Hamilton. They've all been doing their own thing. But over the first lockdown, the Ministry of Social Development, who saw a real urgent demand for food across Aotearoa, there was no one central to talk to representing the food sector. So it was through a grant from the Ministry of Social Development that AFRA was established. Right. And we've been focused on capacity building best practice within the sector, uh, advocacy and collaboration. So, yeah, we celebrated our first birthday at a hui probably only a couple of weeks ago. And that was amazing to see just how far the organisation has gone. We've grown to 23 members now representing the major food rescue organisations, working on some really large projects. I think you actually saw the figures for what we've rescued in the last year. Unbelievable. Over 10 million kilograms of food rescued and redistributed to make 29 million meals. Is that right? That's right. And so that 10 million kgs of food went to a thousand recipient organisations who then gave it to who knows how many countless tens of thousands of New Zealanders. And you've got to remember that, you know, each of these kilograms were lifted by someone into a truck, were then, you know, weighed to keep track of it. They were put into a box, they were sorted, maybe put in a freezer or chiller. Then they were sent around the country. Some of that 10 uh, million kgs came from the New Zealand Food Network. I liken them to this national food highway, which has been built over COVID, which is sending bulk food uh, to regional hubs where our members then get it to those 1,000 recipient organisations. So a huge effort and on the back of thousands of volunteers. Remember, this is a sector that got a little bit of money over COVID from the government, but relies on fundraising, relies on donations, relies on volunteers. And when you break that data down, um, of the 10 million kgs, 7.6 million was rescued. So that was food that might have been wasted in a compost or a landfill or or gone to animal feed. This was good, nutritious food, still safe to eat, 7.6 million kgs. So that's a a carbon saving of more than 20,000 tonnes of greenhouse gases avoided. It's um, about $76 million worth of food. Wow. And six billion litres of water which has been saved and not been wasted so again there's that environmental problem turning into an environmental and social solution and in your first year I believe you've been nominated for a very prestigious award called Earthshot now I had to look it up because I wasn't aware of it but it's a 
something that was set up in 2020 to incentivize over the next 10 years to make a difference. Must be quite a privilege to have received that. Yeah, so um, we're in the running for the for the for the final victory, and that would be a, a wonderful testament to the work of the members and the organisation. Uh, Prince William's involved in this organisation. We were nominated by Oxford University, and it's you know I think to my mind in New Zealand, you know, we're so fortunate that we're quite practical and we just kind of get on and do things. So. While overseas, this is seen as something new and very exciting and very innovative. Some of our members have been doing it for nearly 10 years and they simply saw a problem, which was food was being wasted. They saw a problem in their community that people needed food. Uh, Some of the latest data is one in five Kiwi kids grow up in households with moderate to severe food insecurity. You know, they're literally missing meals. Uh, They saw the problem, saw the solution and just got on and, you know, got a truck or a car or a van and got the food to people who needed it. So... Yeah, it's nice to get that international recognition, though. So how did it come from Oxford University? I can't quite see the connection as to how they nominated you when they got nothing to do with New Zealand. Yeah, so my predecessor, Tessa Vincent, who's studying in Oxford and is working in in the space, told the story of what was happening in New Zealand to her colleagues and academics at Oxford. And uh, I think that's how the circle's been squared. Yeah, I kind of clicked there, but I had to qualify that. That's fantastic, isn't it? It's all those networks, really. And to say the grounding. So what's the future vision for AFRA? Well, our membership's growing. We're really focusing on best practice and um, capacity building. So we're hosting a series of workshops. A project that I've been leading on is a data project. So at the moment, um, our members all record information differently. Um, they've got different standards and processes. Yep. Uh, what we're trying to do is standardise that so we can have a very clear, accurate national picture of the impact of food rescue. So we're working on a on a whole new data IT platform that uh, our members uh, will be looking at, at transitioning to. You know, it's a lot of work trying to wrangle 23 different back <laughs> IT systems and ways of doing things. Yeah, But that's going to be a real game changer to see that data. And I think it's going to be really useful for not only communicating the mahi, the work of the sector, but also identifying the gaps and the needs and hopefully really driving greater support. We would love to see greater financial certainty. Now, as I said, we rely on donations and fundraising, which is pretty uncertain. We've massively ramped up our capacity in the last two years to deal with COVID and growing, you know, cost of living, growing food poverty in New Zealand. We don't want to go backwards. We don't want to lose capacity. We also know only about 15% of good available food from supermarkets is getting to food rescue at the moment. So there's a massive amount that we can actually increase. So that's why we're you know, advocating to the government that we should be receiving greater support, that we can do our important work in a sense. Well, no, not in a sense. Directly, we're helping meet government objectives and aspirations on climate change, on child poverty, on waste. So we think we're a really essential part of the modern food system in New Zealand, and we'd like that to be recognised. And there's a few funding avenues open going forward, but having greater standardised data, I think is really going to help tell that story for for central government and hopefully increase our pitch. We're also working with academics at Otago University on a social research impact report, which is going to sort of demonstrate for every dollar that goes into the food rescue sector, how many dollars or tens of dollars of uh, benefit that's bringing to our society. We'll be releasing that uh, later this year, which is really exciting. We're refreshing our website. We've got a host of resources, uh, which we provide to our members and food donors and constantly advocating to the government for the important role we play. 
Fantastic. Is it really interesting you talking about that data thing? Because I, my guest last week was Junk Run from Auckland. And that was one of the big things that um, the general manager was talking about is creating that inventory at the beginning of whatever you do, bringing all your resources together and you can actually measure your progress. So what can um, the listeners do to help your organisation? What involvement can they partake in? Oh, there's a host of different ways that people can be involved. And no matter if you're in a different town or city across New Zealand, there's probably an AFRA member or a local food rescue organisation working hard. It's everything from helping out with the financial side I talked about. So we're always grateful for donations. We're always grateful for volunteers to help pack the food or or um, access it and, and sort it. We're always looking for, for volunteers and support if people have access to you know sizable amounts of food. And what we have seen with some of the supply disruptions in New Zealand, you know, orchards or retailers or producers yeah. have had surplus food. And even today, some people aren't aware that they can get that food at no cost to a food rescue organisation who can get it to people who need it. In 2014, there was the Food Act passed, which had what's called the Good Samaritan Clause. So some people are unaware that there is a legal protection for the food they pass over if it's going for a, a donated reason. So some people might think it's kind of easier to take it straight to the landfill or just send it to the pigs. But good, nutritious food, I believe, shouldn't be wasted on animals and it shouldn't be rotting causing environmental harm in a landfill, it should be going to people. So if they know or have access to food that would otherwise be wasted, to get in touch with their local food rescue and donate it. Fantastic, because I'm in Waipu, Northland. I know in Kerry, Kerry, this is years ago, but there's an awful lot of wasted um, kiwi fruit for starters because it's not the right size or something like that. So I guess there are a lot of organisations like that. And to actually have that facility that you can arrange for transportation, that's amazing. Um, and it's so important because it's World Health Day on the um, 7th of April. So it's really important that everybody has um, a really a right to nutritious food and support. And there are a lot of unsung heroes um, around New Zealand who are doing a massive amount of work. So if people don't actually want to or are able to get involved in that way, what can they do within their own home to make a difference so far as food waste is concerned? Oh, there's lots of different easy ways that people can reduce food waste. And it's staggering how much food we waste in New Zealand. Uh, you know, it's literally billions of dollars worth. Um, one estimate is about 30% of food is wasted. So, you know, to make sure you're not throwing away. Uh, if you do have to put away scraps, if you can get a home compost bin, that's great for the environment. It's pretty awesome to see the government's currently consulting on some initiatives that might see food scrap collection along with your rubbish and recycling. Yeah, uh, which would be not going to landfill. There's amazing resources on love food, hate waste with some great tips how different products can be saved. We've got some resources on our website as well or social media pages around really explaining the difference between used by and best before. I can only speak personally, but ever since I started working for Afra, you know, I don't mind, you know, yogurt, for example, is perfectly fine a week after the used by sorry, the, the, the best before, but if it's got a use-by date, that's when you should you know, pay attention and not eat it past it. So yeah, we're, we're being a lot more conscious with buying right portions, the right amount of food. You know, it's a tragedy to be wasting food. But nationally as well, there's great initiatives around the gleaning network. So those orchards you're talking about, you know, there is a network where people can access food on, on trees and orchards, for example, that might otherwise be going to waste. There's a great app that people might want to look at, Foodprint, 
which connects you know cafes or, or food providers uh, who might have some surplus food at the end of the day who can then sell it at a discount uh, and that's a bit of a win-win because people get a bargain but also that food isn't being wasted awesome you've been writing a book how has the writing process been for you oh it's the first book I've written so it's been something new and daunting mm-hmm. uh, Jeanette Fitzsimons was you know a, a giant of New Zealand politics you know the first Green Party leader uh, the first Green anywhere in the world to win an electorate seat passed New Zealand's first climate legislation started the country's first climate campaign had been working on these issues for almost 50 years so the hardest challenge for me was just the wanting to do her right and research as much as I was possible to try and read as many words as she wrote. I read every single word she said in Parliament, for example, mm-hmm. waded through decades of archival resources, media stories. I think I learned the lesson that there's got to be an end to research. I could have researched it for another 10 years, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. I left the writing a little bit too late. So that was a bit frantic at the end of last year. But Maybe there was an advantage too of just really knuckling down and doing 16-hour writing days. Wow. Um, hopefully it reads as it's got a bit of a concerted flow, and that's because I literally just did nothing but uh, it, slept, and wrote. Yeah, and then working with the editor and the team at Alan Unwin has been amazing. And what I sort of realise is that the Green Party in New Zealand is the first Green Party in the world. It's this amazing story, and they're celebrating their 50th anniversary in a couple of months. Really? And, you know, wow. in New Zealand, we're, we're proud of our firsts from universal suffrage uh, to the woman's vote. We should also, I think, be proud that we were real trendsetters when it came to green politics. And just today, we saw the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change flashing alarm report, which has been published globally about the state of the climate. You know, environmental issues are, are more important than ever. And we were world leaders on this front. So it's pioneers like Jeanette that have a really important story to play. So for me personally, it was wonderful to learn about the history before I was born and understand a little bit more of the background with contemporary politics. But on another note, you know, after 10 years in politics, you get a bit cynical, you get a bit grizzled. It was wonderful to actually feel re-inspired by someone who had dedicated her life quite selflessly uh, towards protection of the environment and people. So yeah, when, once I finished, I actually felt really re-energized and inspired to, to keep contributing to make good change. Fantastic. So will you be writing another book? Because I, I'm a writer myself and it's actually, you were talking about the research side of things and you can go on forever. And I think the hardest part is deciding what you don't put in because it's all important. Did you make a conscious thing or did it just flow, as you said earlier? Oh, I'd, I'd had quite an outline and I relatively stuck to that. But yeah, there were big parts which I haven't included or I ended up cutting out. When you think about a political party and one that's been around for 50 years, there are so many people who have played such mm-hmm. important roles. But yep. I didn't want to lose the reader by having 200 different individuals yeah. and essentially a, a huge amount of characters. So I really tried to strip that back for the really crucial people that interacted with Jeanette. So for me, the research, you're right, could have gone on for forever. Because the 50th anniversary was looming, I knew I had to get it written because who wants to read a you know a history on the 51st anniversary or the 52nd <laughs> anniversary? I really had to admit that, hit that deadline. Yeah, and, and make some tough choices. But that, that was a real good discipline, actually, making sure I had to finish it on time. 
So um, you say the anniversary is in a couple of months' time. So obviously your book is being timed for this. So when will it be released and when's the anniversary? So the anniversary of the Values Party, which became the Green Party, is the 30th of May 1972. So 30th of May 2022 will be the anniversary. You know, that's an amazing story. There was a, a young university student called Tony Brunt who thought that Norman Kirk and the National Party at the time just weren't reflecting some of the changing values of the late 60s, early 70s. And he saw no one else having these political ideas. So he just started a, a political party, said, I'm going to stand for a seat, had his first meeting at Victoria University. And then from that first meeting, a bunch of people also put their hand up and said, we'd like to be part of that. And so, again, maybe like with food rescue, the rest of the world really took up these ideas. But in New Zealand, we were first maybe because we were practical. They didn't wait around for other people to do it. They didn't <laughs> wait around for, you know, um, academics to write about it. They just got on and did it. Uh, and I think that's just an amazing story how out of nowhere this world first idea popped in. And Jeanette at that time was living in Corsica. Sorry, she was living in Geneva, but was on holiday in Corsica. And she was reading these newspaper clippings about the values party that her father had sent her back from Auckland. And that ignited a fire in her. And that's when her political journey started. So a little idea that can happen in New Zealand, can set off a flame which goes around the world. The German Greens wrote to the Values Party asking if they could borrow the policies that they'd put out there. And now the German Greens are one of the most successful political parties in the world, uh, in, in the government in Germany. So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. And I think that, you know, day-to-day -day issues of politics probably gets in the way of thinking about some of the amazing history that we've seen politically in New Zealand. And I think that's an ideal story because one of the things I'm wanting to do with the podcast is for people to see the connection between our environment and our, our own health, but also not to wait around for other people or governments to do something about it and know that every little thing that you do will have an effect. Um, and I know from my own journey, sometimes that this the problems feel so big and we don't think that we're making an impact but if you take it right back to grassroots everything that we all do um like you said the, how your afro came together people were doing stuff anyway because they cared and that is basically human nature isn't it people do that kind of thing particularly in new zealand i really noticed that coming from england nearly 20 years ago how grounded the Kiwis are and the number eight wire philosophy for everything and they just get on and do it and help people and I think that is something that we can do and influence other people hey yeah and I think we saw that over COVID with our sort of world leading response as well really putting the interest of others not just ourselves or our individuals uh, above it you know we've seen it through our history and I think we're quite rightfully proud of the firsts we've had or you know, courageous steps like nuclear free. So I hope that continues Absolutely. and long may it. And it's great seeing it just on a real, you know, practical sense with food rescue, something that ordinary people can get involved and in, really make a big difference. Excellent, excellent. So we were just talking there about a book. Um, because my the last four questions I would always ask my guests is is there a book or a person that has influenced you? Um obviously Jeanette is one of those people. Is has there been anybody else? Oh, I mean, obviously my my parents, um, I've been married to my wife for a long time, she's a massive support. Yeah, Jeanette Fitzsimon sort of 
tapped me on the shoulder at one point and said, hey, maybe you should think about standing for parliament. Sue Kedgley, uh, the former Green MP, was equally really influential for me as well. Yeah, so it's really nice, given Jeanette did pass away so suddenly, just before the first lockdown. It's not a hagiography. I'm trying to write something which is really investigating accurately her life and trying to get to the bottom of what made her tick and why she did certain things. But it's lovely to, to give a little bit back to someone who was so generous with her time with me. Sadly, she was so busy working on so many causes, she never actually wrote down in a coordinated fashion her thoughts. She wrote voluminously on lots of different topics, but never really put it together all in one place. So it's nice to be able to wrap 50 years of writing and thinking on her path into a single book as well. So yeah, um, I know you're going to ask me who my favorite uh, book is, what my favorite book is. Yeah. And um, the, the, the author, I would love to get to 1% of his skill. Is an American called Robert A. Caro. He wrote a Pulitzer Prize winner called The Power Broker about a, a New York motorway builder, which might sound a little odd and arcane and boring, but it's about this thick. So what's that, about seven, eight centimetres? And it's amazing because really it's a, a study of power and a study of, of our world and our history. And New York is the sort of the, the tapestry this book's written on. He's then spent the rest of his life writing about Lyndon Johnson uh, through four volumes. Again, Lyndon Johnson isn't my political exemplar that I'm looking up to, but boy, the way Robert A. Caro can write and research. And I, again, I try to apply some of those processes. So he says, look at every single bit of paper, you know, talk to everyone you can, be as thorough as you can. But then also, when you're writing history or nonfiction, there's no reason your writing should be of lesser quality of literature or, or fiction writers. So he really strives to make sure that every sentence or paragraph is beautiful, is punchy, is, is well written. And again, if I can get to a, a small percentage of how he does it, I'd be very happy. And that's who I've strived to sort of follow. Wow, fantastic. Before the book comes out, I would like to thank you for honouring Jeanette. Um, it's a wonderful gift I'm sure her family would be most grateful for. Do you have a favourite quote that you like? I'm not really one for, for collecting quotes, but um, just before I finished Parliament, I wanted to do a talk around the big picture of the environment, because so often in politics, you're focused on the day-to-day, -day, you're focused on the bill in front of you, you know, a particular issue. We lose sight of some of the bigger picture issues. And personally, I'm a real astronomy geek. I love space, I love astronomy, I love researching the latest science. And I think when you look out into the universe, there's a great way to actually think about protecting our home, which is, you know, essentially a, a, a a ball of life, the only one we know in the entire cosmos in the hostile vastness of space. And, and a quote I found researching a presentation I gave on the links between astronomy and environmentalism was William Anders, who was an astronaut on Christmas Eve, uh, orbiting the moon in 1968. And he took the first photograph of the Earth from space, the whole Earth. Previously, right. you know, when we sent a rocket up or a satellite, we, we could see a small patch of the Earth. But for the first time, we could see the whole Earth, you know, in space, the blues and the greens and the clouds and the, the, the blackness of space. And he said, we went to the moon to learn about the moon. When we came home, we actually learned about ourselves. And it's been called the most influential photograph. And I love that, that quote he said yeah. that sort of described, you know, it was, they were scientists, but actually what they brought back was this image, which really was a paradigm shift for the way we think about the world and protecting the environment. Absolutely. And it is through our connection to nature, we come to a greater understanding of and knowing ourselves as well and our part in it. 
brilliant stuff, brilliant. So you're a very upbeat young uh, man. Um, obviously, like uh, you're human, like the rest of us. Um, what do you do when you get yourself in a funk? Well, you find yourself in a funk as opposed to get yourself in one. <laughs> yeah, I love to walk. That's my thing. And I know people have different things, but yep. all throughout um, yeah, my adult life, I've loved to go for, for giant walks sometimes for a whole day. What I loved about being a politician is I could walk to work, I could walk home in the evenings, and that was good thinking time. Yeah. I'm so blessed to be alive at this point in time because I love podcasts. So what I love, nothing more, is to go for a walk and listen to my favourite podcast. Unfortunately, um, our, our dog passed away just before I left Parliament, and that oh. was um, one of my favourite parts of my day was just listening to a podcast, walking with my dog. What was your dog's name? His name was Jove, uh, like Jupiter. Um, he was a big old German shepherd. And since we were living on the island, which is a conservation reserve, we couldn't have another dog. So, um, yeah, it's a conversation we're having with the family now. So how old was Joe? He was only five. Um, so it was really quite young. Um, I understand German shepherds can get spinal problems. And, yeah, tragically, he just woke up and we woke up one morning and he couldn't walk. And, um, yeah, it was um, probably cancer. I had a dog that brought over from um, England and he was 15 when he passed. I'll never forget picking him up from the airport because he'd never been apart from us. So he'd been in quarantine for a month or so. And his tail was like a helicopter propeller because it went round and round and round and round. Because it was almost like he said, I thought you'd abandoned me. But when we came to, went to collect him from Auckland and they're just amazing companions, aren't they, dogs? And great with kids as well. I just remember my childhood dog as well. It, it's a sad part of our politics. And we've seen it with tragic consequences in the UK that people's view of being a public official, people just have a, have a go. And um, we actually got the dog originally for safety because we didn't feel that safe as, as a public figure and some of the horrible things people say to, to politicians. So, wow. you know, he wasn't only my best friend and yeah, my walking companion, he was also a bit of family safety. So Aww. yeah, it was really sad to, to lose Joe. The other thing I've become really passionate in the last few years is sailing. So what I love to do if I'm in a thunk is you know, read about it or listen to a podcast about it or we'll go sailing on our yacht. Well, I used to live on the Isle of Wight and Cows um, is an area. So Cows Week, which happens at the beginning of August, is a very big thing for yachties all around the world. So I was never into sailing, funny enough, and I've always been surrounded by water. <laughs> but it, horses for courses. So just to round the interview off, if you were able to influence one thing in the world, what would it be and why? Well, it's something I've thought quite a lot about, you know, in politics and with food rescue. And you know, we've got all these systemic problems facing us. And, you know, people don't want to see a world with kids going hungry, with food going to waste. But unfortunately, that is the world. So what I've been thinking a lot about is systemic change. So personally, what I believe is New Zealand has a wonderful opportunity to be a leader in proposing the alternative values for this new century. And sadly, I've grown up in what's been called the neoliberal revolution, Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson in New Zealand politically, where, you know, dollar values were put on, on everything in society. Values of power going to markets rather than democratic means. The idea of we were individuals out to maximise our own interest rather than being part of a society. And I very much genuinely believe that we've got a wonderful alternative value set in Mataranga Māori. You know, when you look at traditional um, Te Ao Māori values, 
kaitiakitanga, menakitanga, whanaunakitanga. These are really different. It's about looking after people collectively. It's about thinking in the long term. It's about making sure the environment's protected, not just seen as a resource to, to get dollars or put do- dollar values on. So if there was one thing I'd love to do if I was a prime minister, it's to entrench some of those values in our constitution and our politics. Because I believe if we really thought in the long term, if we really thought community, if we really valued Indigenous wisdom, we would um, be able to really reorientate ourselves. So we're looking after people and planet. A man after my own heart. Thank you so much, Gareth. That is just phenomenal. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat and lots of interesting topics. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. Wasn't that insightful? So many beautiful souls we just don't ordinarily get to hear about. And the sheer size and complexity of the operation is incredible, proving many hands make light work, each one contributing to the change we want to see. There's a massive resources on the Love Food Hate Waste website that Gareth mentioned, but for now, I'd recommend taking advice from last week's guest, Ruth from Junk Run, who spoke of doing an inventory of where you are now so you can monitor the progress you're making. Start with an inventory of the food in your fridge, freezer and pantry. Ask yourself, what can you do with what you've already got? What basics do you need to get? And try and get them from a bulk bin place to avoid packaging. Plan your menus. And if you don't like the idea, check out a previous guest, Elise from MenuAid, who can do this for you for just $4 a week. Next week, my guest will be Tessa Livingstone, who will be sharing her expertise about the voice and how we can use it to communicate and express the fullest version of ourselves. On a lighter note, I'd love to round off this week's episode with a fun word that'll resonate with all those of you who find yourself craning your necks to see if there's anything you could pick up from that junk on the roadside. Your quirky intrigue is known as junkernecking. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, be it Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or iHeartRadio so you don't miss future episodes. And be sure to get in touch if you have a subject or a guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at also in the show notes. So until then, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential.